And we are live. What's up, guys? Welcome to Fed It. Today, we're going to be covering the BTK killer. You guys have been requesting this one for a long time, man. This is probably going to be one of the most infamous serial killers, definitely out of Kansas. Let's get into it, guys. We've got a lot to talk about on this one, man. I was a special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, okay, guys? HSI. The cases that I did mostly were human smuggling and drug trafficking. No one else has these documents, by the way. Here's what Fed It covers. Dr. Lafredo confirmed lacerations due to stepping on glass. Murder investigation. You see him reaching in his jacket. You don't know. And he's positioning. Been on February 13, 2019. We are facing two counts of premeditated murder. Racketeering and Rico conspiracy. Young slime life here and after referred to as YSL. The defendants are 6 9 and then this is Billy Seiko right here. Now, when they first started, guys, 6 9 ran. I'm a fed. I'm watching this music video. You know, I'm bobbing my head like, hey, this shit lit. But at the same time, I'm pausing. Oh, wait, who this? Right? Oh, who's that in the back? Firearms and violent crimes. AKA, who strikes he violated. In order to stay away from the victim. Rapper who strikes he arrested after shooting at King of Diamonds, Miami Strip Club, injured one this person. Is the, this is the one that, that's going to fuck him up because this gun is not traceable. Well, it happened at the gun range. Here's your boy, 42 Doug, right here on the left. Okay. Sex trafficking and sex crimes. They can effectively link him to paying an underage girl. I'm going to lock my trip away. Right. And well, the first bomb went off right here. Suspect two sent down a backpack at the site of the second explosion. Inspired by Al-Qaeda. Two terrorists, brothers, the Zokar Sarnev and Tamer Lynn Sarnev. When the cartel shipped drugs into the country. As this guy got arrested for um, espionage, okay, trading secrets with the Russians for monetary compensation. The largest corrupt police bust in New Orleans history. The days of the police are gone. gone. So he was in this bad boy. We're going to go over his past, the gang ties, so that this all makes sense. All right, we're back. What's up, guys? So um, today we're going to be covering the BTK killer, man. So let's get right into it. I'm going to go ahead and share screen with y'all because we got a lot to cover. And uh, yeah, this one is definitely going to be a good one. Um, all right, so here we go. We got Dennis Rader, guys. Here he is, okay? Um, uh, Dennis Lynn Rader, born March 9th, 1945, is an American serial killer known as BTK, an abbreviation he gave himself for bind, torture, kill. The BTK Strangler or the BTK Killer. Between 1974 and 1991, he killed 10 people in Wichita and Park City, Kansas, and sent taunting letters to police and media outlets describing the details of his crimes. After a decade-long hiatus, Rader resumed sending letters in 2004, leading to his 2005 arrest and subsequent guilty plea. He is currently saving 10 consecutive life sentences at El Dorado Correctional Facility. So, yeah, man, he is never getting out. <laughs> but uh yeah we're gonna go over a documentary guys which chronicles his crimes and as we discussed before a lot of these serial killers guys that like operated from the 60s all the way to the 90s a lot of them didn't get caught because of dna which in this case you're gonna see dna <laughs> rear its ugly head i guess in dennis raiders uh not to his favor later on so i got this documentary here guys and we're gonna play this thing it's called Dennis Rader BTK. It's an older documentary, but it was really well done, and they got a lot of the investigators that were involved in the investigation in it. So without further ado, let's get right into it. BTK. Oh, hold on. Until the kill years. For over 30 years, 10 bodies, three initials which struck terror in the heartlands of America. 
B stands for bind, T stands for torture, and K stands for kill. Bind, torture, kill. A serial killer so deadly, even the police feared where he would strike next. I was terrified that this guy was maybe going to come after my family. We go inside police files, piece together the forensic evidence, and reveal the true story of the hunt for one of the world's most wanted. And the, out of the car now! So fast forward this little intro. Wichita, Kansas, built on the prairie flats of the Midwest. Honest, God-fearing, middle America. The biggest city in the state they call the buckle on the Bible belt. A community where people felt safe leaving their doors unlocked. And just so you guys know, here's Wichita, Kansas right here for y'all, because some of you guys might be saying, where the hell is Wichita? So if you go here to a map, it's damn near in the heart of the United States, okay, guys? Um, and... As you guys can see, Interstate 35 goes through Wichita, Kansas, which, uh, you know, as you guys know, I'm very familiar with this highway because this highway goes all the way down to mile stomping grounds of Laredo, Texas, right here. Drugs come into the United States through here, and then they're moved all the way up through the, the Midwest, and Interstate 35 pretty much gets you all the way there. You guys can see all the major cities that it hits. But anyway, back to Wichita. This is where it is, guys. Middle America, you know, Literally, when you guys think about the United States, you think of that American dream, Wichita, Kansas embodies that, okay? So just to give you guys an idea of where these crimes were committed, okay, for all my international viewers out there or for all my people that are geography challenged, which apparently the After Hours shows demonstrate a lot of people don't know where anything is. So uh, hopefully that helps. Let's get back into it. Until a serial killer began to prowl the streets. For over 30 years, two generations of detectives hunted Wichita's serial killer. Lieutenant Landwehr headed the BTK task force. We knew sooner or later he will kill again if we fail. And just so you guys know, you're probably wondering, what the hell is a task force? The task force, guys, is a... Basically, it's a team of investigators from different agencies working together, leveraging their different skill sets and abilities, right, and unique authorities to work together in tandem to go ahead and capture criminals okay right you got the joint terrorism task force which the fbi works with you know homeland security atf dea everybody's working and you know staying locals they're all using their different authorities and powers and jurisdictions to combat terrorism in this case the btk task force you have a bunch of different agencies working together to catch the serial killer because guys this dude had the united states shook especially wichita back throughout the 70s when he was doing this stuff and uh we'll get into more detail on that here in a second but that's what a task force was the fact that they created an entire task force to go after this guy lets you know that they weren't messing around in our camp. btk first struck in 1974 what detectives found at the scene haunted former chief of police richard lemonian for decades this is the house where it all started this is where btk made his first hit over 30 years ago. Most of our homicides were the domestic type, the smoking gun, bar fights, things of that nature. But this particular one was highly unusual, took all of us by, uh, by surprise. 
All right, what you guys are about to hear is pretty graphic. I'm just going to warn you right now, okay? They're going to go into his first murder back in 1974. And, uh, yeah, viewer discretion is advised. The wood frame house was home to the Otero family, who had only just moved into the area. Joseph was an Air Force veteran, and his wife, Julie, worked in the local factory. It was very shocking for the officers, and they came up. They found uh, the parents face down in their own bedroom, fully clothed, obviously strangled, uh, bags over their head. The strangled corpse of nine-year-old Joe Jr. was in another bedroom. But police were still to make another horrific discovery. His 11-year-old sister, Josephine. Josephine had been put through a different type of death than the others. He took her downstairs, and uh, she was obviously alive. He had put a rope around her neck and over some pipes, and he would raise her up, and as she was dying, and he was masturbating at that time, so she was the target, the primary target, I believe, for this. The other three. Yeah, so he had been stalking them prior to this, guys. And he talks about this in his testimony, which I'll play a little bit later. But he used to stalk his victims for periods of times where he would watch them sometimes for months, if not damn near a year plus, uh, getting their living pattern, seeing where they live. And he was very methodical about how he conducted his crimes, though he did make some mistakes. Now, this is 1974, guys. So they, he mentioned that he masturbated, right, at this crime scene um, after uh, murdering one of the children. And they were able to find – they preserved this DNA, which would come back later on, okay, to haunt him. But remember, 1974, they didn't have any of this stuff, all right? The Otero children had only escaped because they were at school when the killer attacked. The killer had made certain there was no call for help, disabling the phone line before entering the house. That's crazy. You know, that, that right there goes to speak to – his mindset when he entered that house. Because just so y'all know, he entered in bare face, no mask. He went in there with a gun. <laughs> so he knew if I'm going to go ahead and get this done, I'm going to go in with a gun. I'm going to cut the phone lines. They will not be able to call for help. And remember, guys, there was no cell phones in 1974. I know you guys are like, wait, why don't they just pull out their iPhones and go ahead and call the police? No, man, no iPhones, no SOSs, nothing. Your phone was your landline back then. That's what led the investigators to thinking that this couldn't be a random thing. People just don't walk in off the street and murder a family. You couldn't get your mind around that. that and real quick, let me show you guys where the house actually is. Here it is, 803 North Edgemore Street, okay, in Wichita, Kansas. So this is the front of the home, right? And then this is how we entered right here. He came around the back. He broke through here, and then he cut the phone line, which was right in this area, and then, boom, he came inside that way. So that's how he actually did it. I mean, it's it's crazy that, um, you know, this house right here ha has that kind of, you know, unfortunate historical value. But, um, yeah. Didn't happen in Wichita, Kansas. But Wichita was different now. BTK had arrived.
searching for the brutal murderer of the Otero family. The victims, a mother, father, and two of their children. All four had been asphyxiated and strangled. Why would someone do this to a family? No one would do this just to go in and do it. There had to be a reason for it. And mind you guys, this was his first murder. This wasn't his like second or third. Like he went right for it. Bare face, gun in there. I'm just going to figure this out. Police thought there could be a sexual motive due to evidence left at the scene. They were focusing on seminal fluid that was deposited near the body of Josephine Otero. They were primarily interested in determining the blood group, if possible. Blood typing suggested the killer was blood type O, but that's the commonest type. 40% of people are type O. Yeah, that doesn't help. <laughs> like uh, the universal blood donor, that doesn't really help too much. Um, and remember, DNA wasn't a thing. So that was really the only way they were able to identify anything is like, okay, we can go off a of blood type, but, you know, which narrows the suspects down to a degree. But once again, that is not uh, definitive and or conclusive. Before the use of DNA, the test could only narrow down the suspect list so far. For nine months, police followed up every lead they had. Witnesses provided descriptions and identikits were drawn up. Then, in October 1974, three men confessed to murdering the Oteros. But one person... Okay, guys, this is where shit gets crazy, all right? Uh, you guys have obviously heard the song by Offset and Cardi B, um, Clout, right? They do anything for clout? Y'all about to see right now, this is the biggest clout chase I've ever seen, and this is before social media. So three guys come forward and say, oh, yeah, we killed the Oteros. And this is how BTK responds knew they were lying those three dudes you have in custody are just talking to get publicity for the otero murders they know nothing at all i did it by myself and with no one's help only the letter's author knew the horrific details josephine hanging by the neck in the northwest part of the basement Hands tied with bind cord, feet with clothesline cord, her glasses in the southwest bedroom. Only the killer would know. None of this had been. Holy! Yo, he's over here giving grim details that only the investigators know and did not release to the public. So clearly, he's like, no, fuck these guys. I'm the killer. I'm the one that did it. And I'm going to go ahead and prove to you guys, telling y'all where I know my victim's glasses are. Which goes to show you guys the mindset that this dude is in. And I'm going to play some testimony from him when he confesses later on so you guys can kind of get an idea of what type of individual we're dealing with here. Released uh, publicly. FBI profiler Roy Hazelwood has analyzed BTK's behavior. It is. Okay, what's an FBI profiler? Real quick, you guys may be wondering. An FBI profiler guy typically comes in when you're dealing with serial killers or someone that they're not able to necessarily identify and they need help building a profile for the serial killer. So what the FBI does a lot of the times is the profiler will come in, look at the scene of the crime, look at how they commit the crime, look at um, any evidence that was left at the scene. And what they do is they build a uh, a profile of that individual and try to establish a pattern. They give uh, you know predictions on how old the individual might be, his race, his uh, what type of uh, personality he may be, what he may do for work, etc. So it gives investigators an idea of where to start looking for this individual based on 
the crime scene. So using FBI profilers is fairly common in serial killer cases where uh, there's not many clues because you guys got to remember the things that make serial killers so difficult to catch is that they kill randomly and they attack targets with no real motive. The, the motive is to kill. It's not necessarily to attack that per specific person for some type of reason. A lot of the times the serial killers are able to commit the crimes the, so viciously is because they don't know who that individual is. They're, they're, they're able to um, separate feeling from that person, which allows them to commit the, the, the heinous crimes easier. Unusual for a serial killer to correspond uh, following the commission of a crime. BTK certainly uh, suffered from malignant narcissism. And that's when you begin to consider yourself superior to others, that you're incapable of making mistakes, and you have a desperate need for attention. He had typed this letter, took it to the city library, and then he called one of the local newspaper reporters. BTK craved attention and used his letter to taunt the police. He dared them to catch him before he struck again. Who does this remind you of? The Zodiac Killer did something very similar where he would also write to the press and the police taunting them about catching him uh, for his crimes. When this monster enters my brain, I will never know. Maybe you can stop him. I can't. He has already chosen his next victim. The code words for me will be bind them, torture them, kill them. B. T. K. And that right there is how he got his name. Claiming the murder for the Oteros when three other guys tried to claim the murder. So he had to write that letter into the media to let them know I did it. And he had to give gruesome, grim details that only the investigator and the killer would know. They will be on the next victim. He's a psychopath. And a psychopath is a very manipulative individual. He's an individual who manages to compartmentalize. In other words, he can separate out. Uh, what's taking place from his involvement. Then nothing for three years. But BTK was preparing to strike again. His next victim lived here on Hydraulic Street. She was a uh, mother, alone with her children, and she was ill that day. 24-year-old Shirley Vianne was at home with her three children that day. He had what he called a hit kit. He brought his own materials. Hit kit. Okay. Who else had a hit kit, guys? Well, Ted Bundy did as well. If you guys go back and watch the podcast I did on Ted Bundy, Ted Bundy used to travel around in his little Volkswagen, right, with, you know, rope, burglar gloves, a crowbar, etc. Um, all these different types of gadgets and tools to um, to capture his victims and kill them. So a lot of the times these serial killers have a methodology that they like to use and a modus of operandi, and obviously BTK was no different. Rope. I mean, hell, it's in his name. Bind, torture, kill. And duct tape to bind the victim and a gun to force them into submission. At 11.45 a.m., he was ready to strike. Get in the bedroom! Get in the bedroom! Get in the bedroom! 
He locked the children in the bathroom. He murdered her by strangling her slowly. Sexual sadism feeds off of the response to the infliction of physical or emotional pain. The only act of mercy this this fucking asshole gave was not allowing the children to watch what happened to the mother. It's the only act of mercy, and he, and I, he let them live too. But ridiculous craziness, guys. Extremely important for BTK to elicit that a response of terror and fear. Then something happened. He didn't get the phone wire cut. Phone rang, but became a panic situation for him. So he left. The investigators came to me and said, there's a possibility this is tied to the Otero murders. Something else puzzled the chief. Shirley Vian's son saw the murderer at the door of a neighbor's home earlier in the same day. We never did think that she was the primary target, which turns out she wasn't. Very few people experience in a lifetime being able to say, I was the target of a serial killer because most people that are targets of serial killers don't live to talk about it. Cheryl Sarkozy and Judy Skirl were roommates back in the late 70s, living just a few doors down from Shirley Vianne. But on the day of the murder, the women were out. I came home and the police said that a man had murdered the woman down the street from me, but previous to him murdering her, he had come to my house and knocked on my door. So the police believed that I was the intended victim that day. Cheryl had had a luckiest. So he took a crime of opportunity. Escape. But the roommates think BTK came back the following year. And I can remember turning on the kitchen light as I'm entering the room. And I looked up and I saw a man peeking in the back window. And he turned and walked away. And by then we had the phone and we had dove underneath the kitchen table for safety. And tried to call the police and waited underneath the kitchen table until the sun came up. BTK targeted neighborhoods where he thought he might find women at home alone. He would troll the area. He would find somebody that looked right to him. And that's how he would target his victims. 25-year-old Nancy Fox lived alone, getting home late from working two jobs. Part of his protection against making mistakes was getting to know his victims, gathering intelligence, where they live, what kind of car they drive, what time they come home. That's an understatement. He would spend months doing this, guys, studying these individuals. On the 8th of December, 1977, Nancy Fox returned home from her job at a jewelry store. Hi, Nancy. Manual and ligature strangulation hanging. These are very slow and agonizing ways to die. Sure. sure. 
take through here. He did take the victims to the brink of death, let them know that they were at the point of death, and that he allowed them to come back. Ted Bundy also used to do this, right? Because it gives you that feeling of being God, where you're able to torture the victim, you know, get them to pass out, go unconscious for a period of time, then bring them back to life. And John Wayne Gacy did this, Ted Bundy did this, and also BTK. It allows them to feel this sense of dominance and power. Jeffrey Dahmer also used to do this as well because he didn't like it when people would leave. If you guys go ahead and watch the podcast, which I've done podcasts on all these serial killers, by the way, but this is one of the underlying things that all these weirdos all share in common. But Dahmer was more on, he wanted to like own them to a degree and <clears throat> he didn't want them to leave. Anytime they want to leave, that's when he would commit the murder. And, uh, and then the Zodiac killer also would say, oh, I'm going to kill these people and they're going to be my slaves in hell or in paradise. So these guys have a very warped sense of dominance, of belonging, of wanting to feel this uh, strange God complex over the individual. Um, John Wayne Gacy would do this as well, where he would drown them, or, he, or excuse me, they showed this in the Jeffrey Dahmer uh, Netflix series where, you know, the guy says, oh, why are you doing this? You know, God, please help me. He's like, I am God. And he drowns them again, right? It's a very graphic scene. So um, that's what a lot of these weirdos get off on, okay? That method of allowing the victim to revive goes to his playing the role of God. He has within his power life and death over another human being. Eight eighteen the following morning. Police hear the killer's voice. Now, uh, this is where the murder actually happened, guys. It was at eight forty-two Pershing Street. This is where the the murder happened back then in nineteen ninety-seven. Uh, that we just went over. Um, <clears throat> and he actually called the police after this. Um, and this was on December eighth, nineteen seventy-seven. Nancy Joe Fox. <clears throat> and I'll play a portion of that call. You guys hear that? It's 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 a little warped, but basically he's saying you're going to find a homicide at 843 person. I'll play that back for y'all one more time. This is him actually calling the police after the murder. This goes to show the craziness of this dude. So he says you'll find a homicide and he drops the Addy, right? 843 South Pershing, and then he actually knows her name, Nancy Joe Fox, because they spoke for a period of time prior to him doing this. For the first time. Dispatcher. You will find a homicide at 843 South Pershing. Nancy Fox. Goes to his narcissism, that need for attention. Here I am, I'm calling you to let you know that I did it, and you still can't catch me. And they played that call a million times, guys, right? Uh, to try to get, hey, you know, does his voice sound like that? Of course, this is in 1970, so phones weren't as clear back then. Police rushed to the call box, but when they got there, the killer was gone. It's part of his power. It's part of his game that he's playing with the police. Two months later, BTK made his next move. A package arrived at this Wichita TV station. It was a package that contained not only a letter, but a poem. And I have a portion of the poem here. It was titled. This is crazy, guys. So he sends a poem over 
to the police after he killed Nancy Joe Fox. Oh, death to Nancy. What is this that I see? Cold, icy hands taking hold of me. For death has come, you all can see. Hell has opened up its gate to trick me. And then it's signed BTK. Bro, holy, this guy is on some demon time. <laughs> He said, quote, writing poems about killing people. How about some names for me? Well, I like the following. Some names like the, the BTK, BTK Strangler, Strangler, the Psycho. And then he continues. He says, the Wichita Executioner, the Asphyxiator. The killer claimed to have committed seven murders. The Otero family, Shirley Vianne, Nancy Fox, and one unnamed victim. How many do I have to kill before I get my name in the paper or some national attention? I think it's this. How many more do I have to kill to get national attention? So that speaks to this guy's need for attention. This line that absolutely stopped everyone in their tracks. BTK's threat to kill again gave police a horrible dilemma. Give the killer the recognition he craved or risk provoking him into another kill. There was a lot of debate in terms of what we should do. Should we give him credit? Should we not give him credit? There's certainly a danger of uh, recognizing the presence of a serial killer within the community and, and particularly giving him a name because now what you've done is you've validated what he's doing. Uh, it may in fact encourage him to commit more murders. But with us right now is chief of- But when you're low on leads, what are you gonna do? You, you, need to, you need to put the information out to the public for public safety reasons so they know, hey, lock your doors at night, there's a fucking crazy guy running around breaking into homes. And on top of that, you need leads, you need potential sources coming forward, witnesses. Um, so this is the 70s, guys. Police were not as sophisticated back then as they are now with DNA, databases, computer systems where they're working together. Back then, it was like old school police detective work where you were on surveillance all day. You may or may not share information with other police departments. You didn't have a database to go ahead and compare other information with unless you went actively and sought it out from other departments. There wasn't a centralized uh, fingerprinting system at this point, really, where it was like clearly being shared. There wasn't DNA. None of this stuff was around. So they had to rely heavily on the community to be able to go ahead and solve these crimes, especially when you got a serial killer where they're going ahead and just killing people for no real motive. There's no background. And it's very difficult to ascertain the link between the killer and the victims, which a lot of the times there is none. Police Richard Lemonian. But police decided they had to warn the public. A serial killer was stalking Wichita. Do you see any pattern to BTK's conduct? We have an individual who apparently has the uncontrollable desire to kill at times. Ultimately, I was the one who had to make the decision. Yes, you're smarter than we are. Yes, uh, we recognize who you are. And yes, this is your name. We were convinced that unless we were able to get him communicating, we would have another murder. Chief, what kind of leads do you have? Well, very honestly, we have no solid leads at all. Yeah. Using TV, the chief tried to snare BTK with a strange experiment. Subliminal imaging. The subliminal image was one or two frames that was spliced into videotape. And in it, it contained a couple of words 
and what the psychological impact of that we hoped was that that image would be burned into BTK's brain. It sounds rather silly now, but uh, 30 years ago, they there was some credence to that. That's the Here's what went out on air. Bright murder that occurred. Here it is, slowed 50 times. Call the chief with the upside down glasses. If you guys remember in his letter, what did he say to the police? Oh, Josephine Otero, the 11-year-old, by the way, that he had killed in his first murder when he invaded that home, he said in his letter, oh, the glasses were left in the bedroom, okay? So only the killer and the police would know this, which is why they did this, but um, you guys are going to see here why this was definitely an L for the police. In the Nancy Fox sketch that he sent us was a pair of glasses that was lying upside down. And so what the uh, behavioral science people came up with was a picture uh, with a pair of glasses upside down, and it simply said, call the chief, knowing that he was watching this. That person is going to kill again. It didn't work. He never did communicate with me. Yeah, of course not. He doesn't want to get caught. Not only that, you guys flashed it for like a second on the screen, but, you know, this is 1970s police work here, you know? <laughs> Robert Beatty, a local attorney following the BTK story, felt panic grip the entire city. Women would call the police to come and check their residence. Night after night, they would go in the house with their guns drawn and flashlight out, searching through the house. So he has them shook in Wichita, man. People are all over the place are calling the police. I think the BTK's in my house. You know, put that 911's got to roll out there. Okay, ma'am, we good. This is our 10th call of the week, but it's okay. We'll search it anyway because they, they, they're like, oh, what are they going to do? You know, everyone is terrified at this point. People were scared to death that this maniac was going to get them, particularly young women. I put triple locks on all my exterior doors. I put interior locks on our bedroom doors. And even still, I just laid awake all night waiting for this man to come back. We came to the conclusion that this was someone that lived in this community, that that was someone's neighbor. We think he's one of us, and that's why we can't find him. He's right out here among us. How could detectives uncover the killer in their community? New forensic tests were used to examine clothing from the Nancy Fox crime scene. The robe that was submitted from the Nancy Fox scene was processed once we've identified stains that are he left dna at that crime scene as well um and it's very strange because the thing with btk guys and you guys are going to see this a little bit later in some of the confession video he would masturbate after the murder had been committed after the person had pretty much been deceased so he got like a huge sexual thrill out of killing the individual nancy foxy's told her oh i'm gonna have sex with you but he never actually did it wasn't until she passed away that and he just jerked off and, and left. He just busted a nut and left, which is weird, right? But um, 
but yeah, that was the rules that he used with Nancy Joe Fox. He basically broke in. She's like, what the hell are you doing here? Obviously, rightfully so. He's like, listen, I got a sexual problem. We're going to bang. It is what it is. And she's like, well, I want to use the bathroom. He's like, okay. She goes to use the bathroom. She's like, let's just get this over with. He's like, all right. So they go into the room, and he actually chokes her with a belt and kills her. He strangles her with the belt. At that point, right, because she thought they were just going to have sex. It wasn't going to be, you know, he, he made it sound like that. But he killed her. And then after, you know, he did the masturbation thing, and then it went on her nightgown. And that's where he, what he left on the scene. And they preserved it. You know, thankfully, they, they preserved it for the future. Let's get back into it. Possibly semen. We can use a microscope to look for sperm cells. Scientists could now classify people into two categories, secretors or non-secretors. If you're examining a seminal fluid stain and you're unable to identify a blood group, one conclusion that you could draw is that person is a non-secretor. BTK's blood type was not detectable in his semen. This made him a non-secretor. This new information made the previous blood typing inconclusive. To narrow down the suspects, the lab carried out a further test on proteins present in the semen, called PGM. The perpetrator was a non-secretor. That narrows it down to approximately 20% of the population. And if on the other hand, you also know that they are a PGM type 1, and that is expressed by 50% of the population, you can combine these two points of information and further narrow it down to about 10% of the population. But even with this information, BTK could still be one of more than 15,000 men in Wichita alone. What made it even harder for police was that- So as you guys can see, still don't have refined DNA to be able to pinpoint it into one individual. The BTK left long gaps between murders. It had been three years since his last killings. Every time he makes a mistake, you'll see a period where he went. Just so you guys know what they're talking about when they're talking about gaps in murders. Here we go. Here's a chart right here of all the murders he did. So as you guys can see, first one, January 15, 1974, with the Otero family, right? Then you got Catherine Doreen Bright, which I'm surprised this documentary didn't cover this one. Long story short, the guy, the abrader, right? He was waiting in a home. Doreen Bright shows up. However, she's with her brother. And, uh... Her and her brother, you know, he ends up, you know, showing them both a gun. He ties up the brother and then he goes to attack the sister in the other room. But the brother is able to get himself free and fights Raider, uh, a.k.a. the BTK. And what ends up happening is Raider shoots him in the head. But miraculously, he's able to get out the house and call the police. So Raider at this point is freaking out like, holy crap, what am I going to do? So he ends up, you know, going against what he normally does. And he stabs um, Doreen Bright, Catholic, uh, Catherine Doreen Bright, he stabs her and gets the hell out of there. And they were they weren't able to catch him. And this was in 1974, a couple months later. So obviously this spooks him because he almost got caught. He doesn't kill again. You guys can see here his brother, uh, her brother uh, Kevin Bright. He escaped. He survived. All right. Um, and then after that, Shirley Ruth uh, Vian Relford, 1977, and then a couple of m- months later. December 8, 1977, and then he doesn't kill again, guys, until 1985, and then 86, and then 1991. So, you know, you this goes to show you guys the, uh, you know, the methodicalness of BTK as far as like studying his his uh, his victims, which obviously makes it harder for the police. Not take any action at all. After he makes his phone call, 
in the Fox case. His voice is recorded. Nancy Fox. He's afraid, again, that someone will be able to identify him. Following the murder of Nancy Fox, BTK seemed to go underground again. We know that he was out there selecting victims in preparation for future attacks. As detectives struggled to picture the phantom stalking their city, BTK was free to kill again. A pattern in BTK's killings, or link. He was known as BTK. Bind, torture, kill. Police searched for a pattern in BTK's killings, or links between the victims. They so you guys can see the grid right here as far as the different addresses. And look at the proximity, guys. It's all within maybe a couple miles of each other. Not too far. All in the Wichita metropolitan area. Fell within a small radius, but nothing else appeared to link them. It'd be impossible to gauge who his next victim would be. He is totally random, and that would be very difficult for any investigator to try to link those together because it just depends on what he feels like that day. Police looked again at the evidence in the hope of finding a connection with the killer. The letters sent by BTK were always photocopied to help disguise the typewriter he had used. But unknown to BTK, early photocopy. Mm, that's smart right there, right? You don't want Pete back then, guys. I know some of you guys are like, what the fuck is a typewriter? Yes, guys. Yes, a typewriter used to exist. It's when you put a piece of paper in, you type on that bad boy, and then you just like, it goes, duh, 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 and then you got to move it back this way and then type some more. That's what he was using back then. So he tried to disguise it because other serial killers had also used typewriters, and the police were able to kind of identify what type of typewriter it was typed on based on the font or the way it was made, etc. Get back into it. Used distinctive paper rolls and toner. Detectives traced the paper from BTK's communications to a machine in this building on the campus of the State University. Police hoped this might pinpoint BTK, but he was not the only one using this machine. Yeah, that makes it tough. The problem is it, had, it was public access. Anybody could put a nickel in. So this detective right here was one of the main investigators involved in the case. He might have been actually the lead detective on this investigation, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, back in 2004, 2005, when they eventually caught this guy. And anybody could make a copy there. The photocopier could not reveal BTK's identity. The best evidence we had was the voice tape. Uh, we played it over and over again. The voice on the recording that came into the dispatcher appeared to be a white male. So we're looking at white males, probably in their age of their 40s. That's correct. But then in the 1980s, BTK disappeared again. There were no more letters, and the murders seemed to stop. Had he given up, or was he stalking his next victim? Yeah, mind you, the last murder he committed, guys, we looked at the chart here, was 1977. Uh, so he didn't commit his next one until 1985. So the last one he did was December 8, 1977, with Nancy Joe Fox. We were told all along, serial killers can't stop. You know, we didn't believe that. We believe he did stop. We believe he was here. 
police set up a special task force to keep up the hunt for BTK. They had looked at every eccentric, everybody with a sexual offender record, everybody basically with a criminal record. They had looked at them and excluded them. Then in 1985, after six years of silence, another body was discovered. 53-year-old Maureen Hedge was found in a ditch on the outskirts of Wichita. She had been strangled. But police could not be sure if this was BTK. He had never moved a victim from their home before. Oh, switching the methods up. That's this, he Normally he would break into their home or be waiting there for them when they arrived. So this one is a lot different. He knows that that's going to delay the investigation, that it's going to be worked as a missing person, uh, that she drove away. Uh, he didn't want to arouse any suspicions. The murder didn't fit with the killer's normal pattern. It was a discernible ritual, not a discernible M.O. Let's define M.O. M.O. are those acts necessary to the commission of the crime. The thing that makes BTK discernible is his ritual. The killer took the body of Mrs. Hedge into an empty church that night to take a series of sexually explicit photographs. And he took her there. Uh, as uh, a challenge, if you will. He went to God's home, God's house on earth, and desecrated it as part of his belief of how powerful he is. Despite the and he took her to his church, guys, and what he did was he took a bunch of pictures of her in bondage, right? This guy had a crazy infatuation with bondage. Wild bold risks the killer took the murder of marine hedge remained unsolved but mind you he had been studying this woman right probably for the better part of a few months maybe even a few years because the last crime he committed was in 1977 so it's not until 1985 that he strikes again so he probably had been doing quite a bit of research really putting time and effort into being able to do this crime and get away with it so they can take these greater risks with the confidence that they are so superior, they're not going to be caught. BTK meticulously planned his attacks. He could wait years to find the right victim. In between attacks, jewelry stolen from previous victims became the focus of BTK's attention. I think he had his trophies. He could relive the crime. There are ways for a person to satisfy himself, uh, and that's masturbatory fantasies. So we know he used his trophies. Six years after the murder of Marine Hedge, another body was found. Keeping trophies is very common with serial killer killers, guys, or sometimes people like, you know, the the... The Green River serial killer, which I'll cover on another episode, or Ted Bundy, they would go back and revisit the the corpses of the individuals they murdered. So, yeah, the, the, these guys want to relive their gruesome crimes. 62-year-old Dolores Davis was enjoying her retirement in a house on the outskirts of town. As Mrs. Davis slept, someone hurled a concrete block through the glass door of her home. Sound like a bomb, probably. Not his normal MO either. 
And I think she jumped out of bed and, um, you know, you're trying to get your bearings, figure out what went on. And here's this animal standing there. And then he went ahead and strangled her with her pantyhose. Police discovered the body under this bridge, 10 miles north of Wichita. But they didn't know just how close the killer was. BTK had set up a complex alibi to ensure he would not become a suspect. It was about a mile and a half away from his house. It set up that he was on a scouting trip because it was close to his house. So he thought it was too close to home that he thought that he might become a suspect. He left no evidence. There were no witnesses. If you have a 10 as the maximum. So look at that. He went ahead and made a complex alibi, guys. Hey, couldn't have been me. I know it was close to my house or whatever, but it wasn't me because I was doing this, that, and this. And I got three other witnesses, by the way. I was here, guys. I did not kill this woman. So that just goes to show, guys, this is one of the probably the most calculated serial killers as far as like studying, planning, preparing, executing, having their tracks covered. BTK is definitely up there as far as being calculated. A lot of these other serial killers, I'll be honest, they get sloppy, man. Reckless. Uh, best organized, then I would say, with one being the least organized, then I would say BTK is an eight on a scale of one to ten. Seven. I would agree with that. He's probably one of the better organized serial killers by far compared to these other guys. Over 30 years after BTK. You could be sloppy like John Wayne Gacy and just bury all of them underneath your fucking house. Like, holy. <laughs> and in your backyard yeah, they found 33 bodies uh, I think no 26 or 27 bodies guys underneath his house and in his backyard right but yeah so he definitely was a lot sloppier Gay had first struck 10 unsolved murders still haunted the city in his letter of 1978 the killer had claimed 7 attacks but BTK had remained silent on 3 more unsolved murders all leads had come to a dead end. But in 2004, advances in DNA technology provided a breakthrough that would prove crucial. The semen samples from murders BTK carried out. Oh, here we go, guys. Now we're, we fast forward to the 2000s. Out in the 1970s, were reanalyzed. Police now had a DNA profile of the killer. Oh, you fucked up now, Dennis. You wanted to bust nuts all at the crime scene? Oh boy, they got you now. Gotcha, bitch. We had the DNA profile of BTK. However, until we had a profile from a known individual that we can compare that to, uh, we couldn't identify that individual. Uh, the only thing that we could exclude is that when we ran the profile through the DNA database, this person was not a convicted offender that had his profile in the database. Then on the 30th anniversary... So they have his DNA, but they know that he hasn't been arrested and or put in the database uh, for any type of real serious felony conviction. Because at this point, guys, you know, they're collecting DNA from a lot of people that are arrested. I mean, hell, when I was an agent, we we're collecting DNA from guys. We were swabbing them before we brought them over to the marshals or the marshals would swab them as well. So DNA collection is a relatively new thing. Anniversary of BTK's first attack came news of an upcoming book saying that BTK was history. I thought, this guy is probably dead. It started as an academic educational exercise. But there was a point when I realized that this might actually flesh out the killer. If he is still out there, we may hear from him. That was a challenge to BTK. 
I'm still here. You know, I'm still omnipresent, if you will. I'm everywhere. March 19th, 2004. A letter arrived here claiming credit for a brutal, unsolved murder in 1986. The victim, 28-year-old Vicky Weatherly. The signature was all too familiar. There was no doubt that it was... Bam. So he lets them know, guys, I go nowhere. I'm still here. Matter of fact, let me give you guys an unsolved murder and let you guys know who the real culprit was. You stupid police couldn't even catch me on this one. And he signs it with his initials. His need for the clout was so goddamn strong that he had to come back 20 plus years later to claim credit for a murder that the police never even knew about. It's a genuine communication. We were going to work the case that it was BTK and that we were going to catch him this time. The strategy was to keep him talking because the problem we'd had before was that we'd get a letter from him and then we would not hear from him for another three or four years. So we wanted the frequency of the communications to increase. Police could not risk BTK going underground again. And it was critical that we set up a bond between Lieutenant Landwehr and this killer. Because guys, they had not heard from him or his last murder had not occurred since 1991 at that point. So when it hit 2004, they're like, oh, shit. At this point, the FBI told us that it was very possible that the killer could become obsessed with that person and possibly target them or their family. Now, this was the worst time of my life. I was, you know, I was terrified that this guy was maybe going to come after my family or somebody or kill someone else in this community. And it was going to be on my watch. We were very, very careful to never say anything that might challenge him, anything that he might perceive as uh, belittling. Uh, we did not want to set this man off. We did not want to upset him in any way. This is one of the most challenging cases that I've ever been involved with. Uh, and I find that the individual that is doing this would be very interesting to talk to. I'm not talking to the press. I'm not talking to the public. I'm talking to BTK. And I want BTK to understand that he finally got the notoriety that he had always craved. The residents of Wichita felt the fear of over 30 years ago grip the city again. The hunt was on for BTK. BTK responded to Lieutenant Landwehr's appeals in a series of notes and packages, often inside cereal boxes marked BTK. He sent a bound and hung doll, a chilling reference to young Josephine Otero. Bro, this guy, crazy. <laughs> Demon time for real. And I'll show you guys some of these evidence photos right here of him uh, sending these things to the police, right? Um, here you guys can see this is the doll hooked as a pipe to reference, you know, Josephine when she was killed. Uh, this is the serial box that he had, had uh, that he had, right? Serial killer, get it, right? Sick joke. Um, and then this is some other more graphic stuff. But yeah, man, wild stuff. And let's go back. I got some, another clip to show y'all as well. But even more sinister, BTK revealed his plans to kill again. All right. So obviously, this drives the police 
into overdrive because they're like, yo, is this guy going to go ahead and kill someone else? Like, what's going on here? And the fastest way to get a police department motivated, guys, is to go ahead and say that you're going to hurt children. All right. So let's go ahead. And I got this documentary here uh, from Netflix. Okay. Hopefully I don't get hit with a pot copyright too bad. Right. So this is, uh, we'll play a portion from here that covers this angle as well. You're just pressing all the buttons to get a police department fired up. Facts. I'll tell you guys this. Remember, I remember one time I got a, a case that had to do with a kidnapped child and I worked all night that night. I remember I did not go to sleep until we found out where the hell she was. And uh, it's a very satisfying thing. Uh, uh, you know, it's a very satisfying feeling uh, to help a to, you know, help a child. Right. There's no better satisfaction than that. And I'll tell you how this man as an investigator. There's no better fuel. You, you don't sleep. You're like, yo, there's a kid missing. We got to get this done. I'm not sleeping until we figure this out. So. I can speak from personal experience as to what, how that motivates you. I drove to the Home Depot to see if we could recover the other package. We really didn't know what we were looking for. That's a detective again. I told we you went all over that store and just did not find anything. So we put a sign there that asked anybody if they saw anything unusual. Our greatest concern is that it had been found and disposed of, that people didn't recognize what, what it was and somebody just thrown it away. One dispatcher, and she said that they had had a phone call from a gentleman and that he was an employee of Home Depot. Okay, so this is where he left the, the cereal box, guys, that I showed you guys a picture of before. He recalled finding something suspicious in the bed of his pickup truck, which was parked in the parking lot. I called him and I asked him what it was that he thought was suspicious. And he said, well, it was a cereal box. I said, well, where is that now? And he said, I have it on my kitchen table. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Oh, shit. Inside, there was a, another note. See, as you guys can see, he, he just having fun with this, right? And notes to the police leaving cereal boxes around, you know, thinking this is a game. You know, of course, he doesn't realize that in 2004, at this point, the police are a lot more sophisticated and they have his DNA. So he doesn't know this. Okay. All right. You ready? All right. He's about to read the letter, guys. Let's get into it. Can I communicate with Floppy? and not be traced to a computer. Be honest. I will try a floppy for a test run sometime in the near future, February or March. Bam. Let's go back to the other uh, one. And that will make more sense for you guys. But I wanted to run that Home Depot once you guys kind of got the full context there of them um, picking up the packages. Because he had sent a couple other packages prior, actually. Let me go back here. So you guys get the full picture. He really thought this was a game. That was the Home Depot. He would send notes. I drove up to North Seneca to collect the first package. This was a secluded area. The road was sand and dirt and leaning up against the street sign. There's a 
Post Toasties cereal box. And just so you guys get an idea here, North Seneca to Wichita, okay, is up north. It's north, north Wichita area, about 10 miles. So who would drop these packages off in rural areas? Cereal box for a serial killer, I With guess. notes. Inside it was a cheap doll. And that's how they find tied to it. Supino Terra. I was taken to heart by everybody on the task force. All right. So let's go back. I've spotted a female that I think lives alone. Just got to work out the details. I'm much older now, and I have to condition myself carefully. Got to do it this year or next. Time is running out for me. He makes a threat that he has found someone, and we made sure that the public knew this is serious. Don't trust anybody. I can see the fear in their eyes. And when the most important people in an investigation are that scared, it's a scary feeling for everyone. For 10 months, police play a game of cat and mouse with BTK until the killer's urge to communicate leads to a critical mistake. Bam. Leaves a package in an open flatbed truck outside a Wichita hardware store. Which we know it's Home Depot from the other documentary. A parking lot covered by security cameras. Detectives prepared to analyze more than 2,000 hours of footage in a race against time. A vehicle comes into the lot. It, it does kind of a loop and it pulls next to the truck. He pulls something out from his vehicle. See it right there in this area right here, guys. Places it behind the cab of the truck and then gets back in his vehicle and pulls away. The pictures wouldn't identify BTK, but could they pinpoint his vehicle? Forensic experts analyzed the image. By measuring the size, volume, and ground clearance, as well as the paintwork shade of the vehicle, detectives made a crucial discovery. BTK drove a black Jeep Cherokee. Holy, bro. BTK is not 1974, it's 2004 now, motherfucker. They got you. Gotcha, <laughs> oh, bitch. Oh, man. L for him. You know what I mean? This is the, the, this is the era of surveillance cameras, my friend. And as you guys know, this is where he left that cereal box with that note about the floppy disk, which I showed you guys before. So that's how they were able to, you know, conclusively prove, okay, BTK drove this vehicle because we see him on surveillance camera drop putting this cereal box with this note on this vehicle. And then that's when that witness came forward and said, I have this cereal box. And I showed you guys that from the other documentary. That's why I had to combine the two so you guys can get full context here. Shout out to Fed it. <laughs> Because this documentary didn't properly explain that part, so I had to make sure that I included that in there for y'all. In the message left at the hardware store, the killer asks if a computer floppy disk can be traced back to the computer which authored it. If police promised it couldn't, he'd send future messages that way. <laughs> he felt himself in such a powerful position and the police were so dependent upon him for information that they couldn't possibly lie to him 
But police weren't playing by BTK's rules. They set a trap using a newspaper advert. Oh. He wants us to answer in code. He says, Rex, it will be okay. So he told them to message me basically like on a, on a part. And I know you guys will play, what the hell? In a newspaper, guys. So they went ahead and responded via newspaper to him. And they referred to him by his code name, which was Rex, saying, let me know if I can communicate with you guys on floppy. So this was how the police responded to him. And they gave him a P.O. box so that no one in the public would know who they're actually communicating with. And he was able to see it without necessarily being implicated as well. So that's how they respond. The police go, Rex, it will be okay. It, it will be okay. Stop the cap. The police was lying, boy. <laughs> the chances of him falling for that, you know, we didn't think. We didn't think that, that was a possibility. I don't think anyone could ever believe that we were that lucky. BTK had made a fake. We always have a saying in law enforcement, guys, right? I always used to joke around with other agents when I was working, and they always said, we only catch the dumb ones. And in this case, BTK. Stupid. Committing crimes as a serial killer, as if it's 1974 when it's really 2004. He's using 1974 tactics <laughs> in a modern day, and that's how they got his ass. Let's get back into it. Error. The disc he sent was rushed to the forensics team. Could such a simple trap have finally snared BTK? Microsoft embeds in many of its documents something called metadata. And that metadata is information about the file. You can access that by going to File Properties. And as you can see here, the software that was registered to Christ Lutheran Church. <laughs> and that's the church that he brought that other victim to, by the way. This church is just north of Wichita. But how could it possibly be linked to a serial killer? In addition to that, we can see that the document was last saved by a person named Dennis. After 31 years. Bro, holy. Gotcha, bitch. They finally got a fucking name. And here, by the way, guys, is where Christ Lutheran Church is. Right. Actually, let me just bring this whole thing over here for y'all. This is where Christ Lutheran Church is in relation to Wichita. So you guys can see uh, northern Wichita. And then this is the actual floppy disk, which got him bagged up. What happened next was so quick, so simple. It's hard to believe. We came up with a website for Christ Lutheran Church in Wichita. And on that home page, there's a link to people who are related to the church. So when we click on that link, that brings up the page. It has present the congregation was Dennis Rader. Oh, shit. Detectives rushed to Dennis Rader's house. They still had to check out one vital detail. As we came uh, down the street here, uh, we saw that there was a black Jeep Cherokee in the driveway. And it was just a huge rush of energy because the thing about the Cherokee was it was the one piece of evidence that he didn't know we had. Even with the Jeep, the evidence was circumstantial. So obviously, she cried. Lieutenant Landwehr ordered detectives to hold off. As Lieutenant and he had a good reason for it, even though I know that, you know, at this point they want to put him in jail. But this is where the house is, guys. It's this is the address, 6220 Independence Street. As you guys can see, it's actually been been knocked down. It no longer exists. But this is where his home used to be. 
I bring them all back. I say, no. I wanted to be sure, and I wanted to get some DNA. Police needed to link Dennis Rader's DNA with that of the killer. Which, I'll be honest, that was a very smart call. You guys got the DNA. You got the, you got the guy, the probable st- suspect identified. Why not go in and make sure you know 100% you got your guy so that you don't build a weak case? By secretly accessing medical records, they obtained the DNA profile of Raider's daughter. They wanted to establish if BTK was in fact... So they went and got his daughter's DNA. The father of this individual. It's fair to say that you could exclude over 99% of the population with these paternity tests. DNA from the crime scenes and Raider's daughter proved BTK and Dennis Raider were the same man. Got him. Gotcha, bitch. And also, here's his daughter, guys. And she talks about this, how he... Um, how they identified her through, identified him through her. At one time, the original title of that file was Christ Lutheran Church. And the person last using it was someone logged into a computer under the name Dennis. Man, there he is. But investigators still needed proof positive that church president Dennis Rader was BTK. He looks like the guy next door. So you wouldn't think, is this guy the one running around killing people, binding them and crazy, sending these crazy-ass letters? So they had to be sure, of course. They got it from his daughter. So I was online, and CNN all of a sudden is saying, like, local Wichita News are reporting that Carrie turned in her father and gave a blood sample. So I was like, what? I knew I hadn't turned in my dad, and I knew I hadn't given blood. A couple weeks later... It came out in the news that the um, Wichita police and KBI had gone. Once they thought they knew my dad, which was pretty sure it was my dad, they got a warrant for my medical records at K-State. Carrie had graduated from K-State and while there had tested health services, both a pap smear and a biopsy. Investigators traveled to Manhattan with a subpoena in hand for those smears. Her DNA, a direct match to DNA left at BTK crime scenes. I'm not learning. And that's how they got him. From the people that did it, and I'm not learning it privately. I'm learning it from CNN. How did you feel about really violated and really just mainly violated and embarrassed that now, like, the national news is talking about, like, the most private female test? You talk to your father and yeah because he left those uh, left semen at the crime scene so they were able to go in and compare it and get him which actually really smart by the police to do that armed with this data police were poised to strike shortly after 12 noon on february 25th 2005 dennis Rader headed home for lunch It was kind of fun, to be honest with you. Every police officer since 1974 has wished for the day that I got right there. It was a great, great feeling of relief. Great feeling. I can't remember a better feeling in my life. The bottom line, DTK is arrested. 
They gave that. That's a dot in the marker right there. The guy terrorized the place for three three decades almost. Well, no, three decades, 1974, and they caught him in 04, So over 30 years. All of fear hanging over Wichita had lifted. BTK was captured. But just how much would he reveal? At BTK's trial, chilling details of 30 years of killing would shock the nation. It was Dennis Rader. But what would he reveal to the police? Dennis Rader, you're under arrest. I know. So basically, yeah. All right, so here's that lieutenant that you guys saw during the documentary. And this is an FBI agent. And they did this on purpose to, to appease his ego. They know that he's a cloud chaser. So they bring in a higher-ranking detective and an FBI agent. And they kind of want to get him to, to claim the credit for his crimes. This is the actual footage of Rader's 30-hour interrogation. At first, he stonewalled. Then, three hours in, Lieutenant Landwehr played his ace, the DNA. I know that BTK is the father of your children. I know BTK is the father of your children. Oh, Lord. Gotcha, bitch! Of your children. I know that. No doubt. It's done deal. The tests were done. He's thinking back to all those times he busted nuts at those crime scenes. Like, fuck. God damn it. They fucking got me. I was so stupid. So he says, just say it. Who are you? Say what you are. And he whispers it. BTK. The strategy of winning Raiders trust had been a spectacular success. He honestly believes that, you know, he's the fox, we're the hounds. I mean, I'm serious. He thinks that we're going to come after him, and that's part of the chase, and he's going to escape, and then we're going to come after him again. And uh, now that we've caught him, we're all good buddies. On 27th of June, 2005, Dennis Rader began the most chilling courtroom confession ever heard as he coldly revealed secrets he'd kept for over 30 years. First degree in count two, a class A felony. How he killed the Otero family in 1974. First of all, Mr. Otero was strangled, or a bag put over his head and strangled. Well, I want you guys to look at how matter of fact he speaks about these heinous crimes, all right? And his body language, his tonality, the way he speaks, the, the detail that he's able to recall. Then I thought he was going down. Then I went over and strangled Mrs. Otero. And I thought she was down. Then I strangled Junior. And then when I went back, uh, Josephine had woke back up. What did you do then? And I took her to the basement and eventually uh, hung her. Are you hung her in the basement? Yes, sir. All right, did you do anything else at that time? Yes, I, uh, I had some sexual fantasies. But that was uh, after she was home. One of the problems that the public had... He masturbated is what he did. That's how they were able to find semen on the floor uh, at that crime scene, which they were eventually able to link. Yes, in dealing with serial offenders, as they can't quite get over the fact that almost invariably they look like us. And, we and here's another thing, too. I want to kind of show you guys a little bit more about how chilling some of these confessions were. Okay, this is um, his killing of Shirley Vianne. Okay, this is Nancy Fox. If you guys remember, this, Nancy Fox is when he killed her December 8, 1977. Um, and he broke into the house and he said, oh, yeah, we're just going to have sex. And uh, look at what he did. 
that you unlawfully killed a human being, that being Nancy Fox, maliciously, willfully, deliberately, and with premeditation by strangulation, inflicting injuries from which the said Nancy Fox did die on December 8, 1977. Can you tell me what you did on that day here in Central County? Nancy Fox was another one of the projects uh, when I was uh, trolling the area. So he refers to her as a project and says, when I was strolling the area. Go in the house one night. Sometimes I would. And uh, anyway, I put her down as a potential victim. Um, Let me ask you one thing, Mr. Rader. You used that term when you were. So he was taking notes. Patrolling the area. What do you mean by that? It's called stalking or trolling. So you were not uh, working in any form or fashion. You well, just... I don't know. If you, if, if you read much about serial killers, they go through what they call the different phases. Uh, that's one of the phases they go through as a, as a, as a trolling stage. You're basically, you're looking for a victim at that time. And that you could be trolling for months or years. But once you lock in on a certain person, then you become stalking. And that might be several of them, but you really home in on that person. Uh, they, they basically come the that's that's the victim. Or the, that's what you want to do. That explains the gaps in his crimes because he was spending a significant amount of time watching these individuals. Here's defense counsel telling him, hey, chill out, bro. Shut the hell up. You got to say no, no, I wasn't working, sir. No, this was, no, this was off, off, off my hours. All right, so you basically... Uh, what her name was, uh, found out where she worked, uh, stopped by there once, uh, Hillsburg, uh, kind of... The more I knew about a person, the, the more I felt comfortable with it. So I did that a couple of times. And then I just selected a night, which was this particular night, to try it, and it worked out. All right. Can you tell me what you did? And it worked out. On the night of December 8th, 1977. Now about two or three blocks away, I parked my car and walked to that residence. I knocked at the, knocked at the door first to make sure to see if anybody was in there, because I knew she arrived home at a particular time from where she worked. Uh, nobody answered the door, so I went around to the back of the house, uh, cut the phone lines. I could tell that there wasn't anybody in the uh, north apartment. Uh, broke in and waited for her to come home in the kitchen. All right, did she come home? Yes, she did. What happened? Uh, I confronted her, uh, told her there I was a, uh, had a problem, sexual problems that I would have to tie her up. So he get, he goes ahead and gets the trust. Hey, I just have sexual problems. We're going to have sex, and that's all it is. I'm going to tie you up, though, because that's what turns me on. With her. Uh, she was uh, a little upset. Uh, we talked for a while. Yeah, I'd be mad, too. Goddamn. Broke in my house. Oh, yeah, just so you know, we're going to have to have sex. I got a problem. She smoked a cigarette. Uh, while, the, while we smoked a cigarette, I went through her purse, identifying some stuff. She finally said, uh, well, let's get this over with so I can go call the police. And I said, okay. And she said, can I go to the bathroom? And I said, yes. Uh, she went to the bathroom. Came, and I told her, let's get this over with so I can call the police. I'm going to go to the bathroom. I'll be back. She came out to make sure that she was undressed. And, uh, when she came out, I uh, handcuffed her. And uh, I don't really remember whether. Sir? You handcuffed her? You had a pair of handcuffs? Yes, sir. Uh -huh. Remember, you had that tool kitty walked around anyway, with guys. I, had her, I handcuffed her, had her lay on the bed, and then I tied her feet. And then uh, I, I, I was also undressed to a certain degree. And then I 
got on top of her and then reached over, took either, either her feet were tied or not tied. Anyway, I took, I think I had a belt. I took the belt and then strangled her with a belt at that time. All right, after you had strangled her, what happened then? Okay. Uh, after I strangled her with the belt, I took the belt off and retied that with pantyhose real tight, uh, removed the handcuffs, and uh, tied those with, uh, with pantyhose. can't remember the colors right now. Uh, I think I maybe retied her feet. See, he's thinking of colors, and, like, he, he's running through his head. You guys can see here that he's he's literally running the, the murder in his head, and he's, like, he's going to such detail. I was like, you know, I can't remember the color right now. Not that that even matters. I was like, I don't remember the color, but let me tell you all about this. So you could see him just reliving it. Mind you, guys, this is in 2004, 2005 now when they're asking him this. He committed this crime in 1977. What they had no, and they were probably already tied her feet were. Uh, and at that time, uh, uh, masturbated, sir. All right. At that time, I masturbated, sir. Had you had sexual relations with her? No, before? no, no. I told her I was, but I did not. So he didn't even have sex with her, guys. So you masturbated, then what did you do? Uh, dressed and then went through the house, uh, took some of her personal items and kind of cleaned the house up, went through it, make checked everything, and then uh, left. All right. Demon time. <laughs> yeah. So you guys could see, man, he didn't even have sex with her. He said he was going to have sex with her. That's probably what calmed her down a little bit. Right. And he, he just basically choked her out, let her die. When she died, he masturbated and then le left the semen at the scene, right? Very stupidly, might I add. And then stupid. Uh, and then left. We don't want our perverse to look like us. But I wanted you guys to see that testimony to see the type of individual he was, how matter of fact he is, how, uh, you know, he was uh, di diagnosed with, with a bunch of disorders, which um, OCD w was one of them. This mask of normality was BTK's disguise. He was a family man with a wife and two kids. But this dad was a little different. By the time he had two children, he tortured seven people to death. This was the one part of his life that uh, signified the amount of power that he had. He craved power. BTK's wife, Paula, sang in the church choir. He helped run the Boy Scouts. So his wife sang in the choir. He was in the church. He ran the Boy Scouts. He was a Boy Scout himself, by the way, in his childhood, guys. So this was a regular American guy. Grew up in a two-parent household. Um, didn't really show too many signs of being a weirdo besides killing uh, animals as a child, which a lot of serial killers do. But, yeah, typical American upbringing. Uh, back in, uh, born in 1945 and... Yeah, that's why this was so crazy, because he's like an everyday American guy doing this stuff. He could look like your neighbor next door. He'd chosen the ideal job for a murderer, touring Wichita, installing locks and security alarms in people's houses. Could you imagine that a serial killer that it d does alarm systems and locks? Holy, bro, no wonder he was so prepared. Oh, shit, oh, shit. He's chameleon-like. He, he can project different. And just so you guys know, back in the 1970s, there was no GPS. There was none of this stuff. You either had to know the area or have like a big ass map and you'd be sitting there in the middle of the road like, oh, where am I going? Like this GPS thing didn't exist. So 
by profession, the fact that he went to so many different houses, he was aware of different locking systems, mechanisms, etc. He knew the area well because he had to drive. This is the 70s and 80s before the age of GPSs. Um, he was very well versed in uh, the Wichita, Kansas area, you know, which allowed him to be able to blend in, conduct surveillance, watch these people for months, if not years, and do the killings and not get caught. What fucked him up was the DNA. And his need for clout. If he had never written to the papers, not been so thirsty for attention, he probably would be free right now. Things to different people. When they talk about how his wife had to have known, and I thought, well, you know, I worked with this guy eight hours a day. I was around him maybe as much as his family. No, you, uh, you never. If I ever had to walk down a dark alley, I would have said, I want Dennis. He's the guy I want to be with. I want Dennis. That's the guy I want to be with. That goes to show how well of a mask you put on for the public. Uh, working in any form or fashion. But there was another side to Dennis Rader. If you read much about serial killers, they go through what they call the trolling stage. You're basically, you're looking for a victim at that time. And that you could be trolling for months or years. But once you lock in on a certain person, then you become stalking. And that might be several of them, but you really home in on fronted her, uh, told her there I was a... Uh, had a problem, sexual problem. And what's One mystery remained. Why had there been such long gaps between the murders? Basically, he was raising his children. And once his children were born, it limited the time that he could be away from home. And he did not want his wife to become suspicious. When he was unable to kill, Raider satisfied his urges by practicing on himself. Ties himself up and takes photographs. That's what's important is the bondage and the imagery. He had a fantasy that all of the victims that died would serve him in the afterlife. Those who knew Raider couldn't believe what they were hearing. Well, he went on to talk about the details and how he, uh, you know, smothered the bags over those kids' head. And um, I don't know. It's just uh, it's very bizarre. Raider escaped execution only because his murders were committed before Kansas voted to restore the death penalty. I hate him. And that's why he's alive to this day, guys. Uh, the greatest satisfaction I have in my life is the thought of him burning in hell. When you think about what that cockroach did to so many lives, can you ever exact enough punishment, enough pain to make up for that? No. His sentence was the toughest the judge could impose. Consecutive life sentences, totaling 175 years. There will be people who will study Dennis Rader, I am sure, and try to figure out what makes him tick. I don't really care what makes Dennis Rader tick. The only thing that I'm concerned about is that Dennis Rader will no longer hurt anyone else. And I will sleep very nicely just knowing that he's where he belongs. Bam, and there it is, guys. Hope you guys enjoyed that uh, documentary um, on Dennis Rader, a.k.a. the BTK. 
Um, yeah, so guys, uh, we've covered quite a bit of serial killers now, man. I think I've covered pretty much all the famous ones at this point. We got Ted Bundy, we got the Night Stalker, we got the Zodiac Killer, we got Jeffrey Dahmer, John Wayne Gacy. Now we'd add a BTK to the list, man. So, uh, guys, don't forget to go ahead and like this video, subscribe to the channel. I'll catch you guys on the next episode of Fed It. Peace. I was a special agent with Homeland Security Investigations, okay, guys? HSI. The cases that I did mostly were human smuggling and drug trafficking. No one else has these documents, by the way. Here's what FedEx covers. Dr. Lafredo confirmed lacerations due to stepping on glass. Murder investigation. You see him reaching in his jacket. You don't know. And he's positioning. Been on February 13, 2019. We are facing two counts of premeditated murder. Racketeering and Rico conspiracies.